Hello, and welcome to Rapid Fire Education with Lori Danger. I'm your host, Lori Danger. That's Lori spelled L-O-R-I-E, and Danger spelled, well, just like danger. Do not accept imitations or substitutions in your consumed Lori Danger content. It tends to decline sharply in quality. I can give you my solemn oath that I will never pad this podcast with sawdust as filler. And furthermore, I cite all my sources in the show notes, so you can look there for my research receipts or if you would like to learn more about today's topics. This is an educational podcast designed to stimulate your gray matter. Think of this as a workout of sorts for your brain. I tend to lean heavily into historical-based facts, but I do like to think I am pretty eclectic in the subject matter I choose to present here for your amusement, entertainment, and continuing education. In my subsequent episodes, In my subsequent episodes, things are more meticulously arranged by category and by title, but this first episode is an arrangement of facts that I have somewhat ham-fistedly slapped together, but like, in an intentional way, to help ease everyone in the listening audience into getting used to me and to my show. Everyone's gotta start somewhere, right? Welcome to the first ever episode of Rapid Fire Education with Lori Danger. I truly believe that knowledge is power. Are you ready to be dangerous? Buckle up. Safety first. Everyone ready? Okay. Okay. Let's learn. Since I just talked about stimulating your gray matter, I want to open by reading a Tumblr post titled, You Do Not Exist, by users Desolin the Bunker, BedQuest, and Coke Talk. I have altered it slightly from its original posting by exchanging the word red for the word here, as I am reading the quote to you for you to hear. Here we go. Quote, you do not exist. At any given moment, you do not exist. Your body exists, temporary though it may be. Still, you are not your body. You are merely an electrochemical process of your body. The continuity of your separate self is manufactured every few milliseconds by a hunk of warm gray meat between your ears. In the time it takes you to hear the sentence, your brain has created you a thousand times, and it has left behind a thousand ghosts of you. And now the weather, end quote. I wonder what the weather's like on Ryan Island. Never mind the weather, what is Ryan Island, I imagine you are asking? Well, Ryan Island is our designated first stop on this, my first ever podcast episode. Let's head out to Lake Superior, where on Lake Superior there sits an island known as Isle Royale. Within the borders of Isle Royale, there is a lake called Siskiwit Lake, and on that lake, on an island inside of a lake, there is another island, the largest island on the lake. That is Ryan Island, which is the largest island on the largest lake within the largest island on the largest lake in the entire world. And in case that wasn't confusing enough, I'd like to further break your brain by twisting in a bit of fiction into my episode which I have otherwise built upon a sturdy fact foundation. So keep in mind that this next portion is only partially true, but I believed it with my entire dumbass for a not insignificant amount of time, right up until I went to fact check when putting together this episode. Remember that it's totes okay to be wrong, as long as you learn from it. Mistakes are an opportunity for growth if you let them be, and bad choices tend to make for better stories. Any hoozles. So again, this is the not true portion. On Ryan Island, there's a seasonal pond called Moose Flats. On the flats, there lies an outcropping called Moose Boulder. And to quote from Wikipedia, the Wikipedia article for Siskiwit Lake and Isle Royale, quote, When Moose Flats floods into a pond, Moose Boulder becomes the largest island on the largest lake on the largest island in the largest lake on the largest island in the largest lake in the world, end quote. Even though Moose Flats slash Moose Boulder is not a real place or thing, it's still fun to think about. Next up, I'd like to transport us all back in time, way back to the 18th century, to tell you the tale of one of my favorite old-timey eccentrics, and that would be the story of the wonderfully weird Timothy Dexter. Timothy Dexter was born on Sunday, January 22, 1747, in Malden, which is a town located in the province of Massachusetts Bay. He had very little schooling and and dropped out at the ripe old age of eight years old to work as a farmhand. When he was 16, Timothy became a farmer's apprentice, where he worked until the age of 22 when he moved to Newbury, Massachusetts in the year of our Lord, 1769. 
This is where he met and married Elizabeth Frothingham, a 32-year-old widow whose husband had left her a small fortune in his will. And like most people, Timothy became way more interesting once he had a decent pile of cash at his disposal. And dispose of that cash he did by immediately purchasing a sweet mansion. As the Revolutionary War was winding down, Timothy produced large amounts of, excuse me, as the Revolutionary War was winding down, Timothy purchased large amounts of depreciated continental currency that most everyone considered worthless at the time. After the war ended, the newly formed United States government made good on the notes at 1% of face value, while the state of Massachusetts paid for its own notes at par. This is where everything just started coming up Timothy, as his investment enabled him to collect a pretty penny. Using this as capital, he started wheeling and dealing and making big boss business moves, but all of his business deals were pretty weird and silly-goosey, to frame it mildly. He asked exactly zero questions when some of his business rivals gave him a wink-wink, heavy air quotes implied, sweet tip. They told him he should export bedwarmers, a commodity easily sold in cold New England winters, to the West Indies, which is an area smack dab in the middle of a tropical climate. This was a shady and deliberate attempt to bankrupt Timothy, but because of the quick thinking of the ship's captain, the exported bedwarmers were actually sold as ladles to the local molasses industry, and Timothy ended up making a handsome profit. On another occasion, he was jokingly told to ship coal to Newcastle, which is an area that was well known for exporting that very same product. Timothy took that as real solid advice and got right on that, shipping the coal to the area. It fortuitously arrived at the beginning of a miner's strike, where the coal quickly sold at a premium. Good luck followed Timothy in every bad decision he ever made. This dude failed upward in stunningly idiotic ways that are just no notes, chef's kiss, in their entertainment value. He was once again influenced by peer pressure, this time to send a different cold weather item to a different tropical climate, when he sent gloves to the South Sea Islands. Upon their arrival, they were all immediately purchased by another shipping company from Portugal, who were on their way to China and needed the gloves. Timothy Dexter next imported Bibles to the East Indies and launched off a loaded ship full of stray cats to the Caribbean. All of his prank-happy business bro rivals scratched their heads in baffled silence at this one, as Timothy had come up with these plans all on his own, and both shipments of items seemed not only entirely unwanted, but utterly unneeded. But... When the boats of Bibles got to the East Indies, they were immediately snatched up and sold to Eastern missionaries. And when the boat of floating felines got to the Caribbean, those kitty cats were immediately sold as a solution to the local and horrible rat infestations. Timothy Dexter could not lose. Bummer that he never got to try his luck at a Vegas slot machine. <clears throat> On another occasion, he mistakenly hoarded a bunch of whale bones and was able to turn around and sell them at a profit as corset stays. Even though he was constantly mocked, ridiculed, and messed with by his contemporaries, Dexter was unapologetic, knowing haters gonna hate, and he sat comfortably atop a pile of gold in his sweet mansion, secure in the knowledge that they were all just jelly of his uncanny ability to corner the market on goods that others did not see as valuable. I'm sure he laughed all the way to the bank about his profit in acting the fool. His weirdness was not just contained to his strange business practices, though. My favorite part of this glorious weirdo's Wikipedia entry is by far this portion. Quote, Despite his good fortune, his relationship with his family suffered. He frequently told visitors that his wife, who was very much alive, had died, and that the woman frequenting the building was simply her ghost. End quote. Before his death on October 23rd, 1806, which according to Google was a Thursday, Timothy Dexter wrote a book. This book could be more accurately described as a manifesto, but this was the early 19th century, and the concept of manifestos had not yet been invented. Just to be on the safe side, that, that right there, that was sarcasm, folks, because jokes are always funniest when you feel the need to explain them. <laughs> Dexter's book was titled A Pickled for the Knowing Ones. This manifesto slash manuscript contained 8,847 words and 33,864 characters. Excuse me, and 33,864 character letters and a grand total of zero punctuation. 
The book was riddled with misspellings and was made up of Timothy's complaints about politicians, the government, and his super alive ghost wife. And speaking of people who wrote books, oh man, that's a shit segue, but I'm sticking with it. I need to bring a bit of levity to the table, if only for myself, before I bring everyone down. This next part is a bit heavy, but I also think that it's really important. Thank you for listening and giving me the opportunity to share this, because it's something I've been chewing on for a bit now. First off, though, I want to share an interesting fact that's related to the subject I'm about to delve into, and that subject is Anne Frank. Did you know that Audrey Hepburn declined the offer from none other than Otto Frank to play his daughter Anne in the 1959 film adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank? Audrey Hepburn declined because she did not want to relive her own wartime experience in in German-occupied Holland. Now the part that's been living in my head rent-free for a while now. Anne Frank is most remembered for her quote about believing people are good at heart. The full quote reads, quote, In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply cannot build my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. End quote. And while that's a beautiful sentiment, it was pointed out on a recent episode of Behind the Bastards by Robert Evans that her diary was written while she was in hiding and that she may not have felt the same way after her time spent in the concentration camps. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. These are the known facts. In July 1942, Anne and the Frank family went into hiding in concealed rooms behind a bookcase in the building where Anne's father, Otto Frank, worked. The Frank family was discovered and arrested on Friday, August 4th, 1944. Following their arrest, the Franks were transported to concentration camps. Anne and her sister Margot were transferred from Auschwitz-Birkenau to Bergen-Belsen on Wednesday, November 1st, 1944. The Red Cross lists Anne Frank's official date of death as Saturday, March 31st, 1945, most likely from typhus. I've read several first-hand witness accounts from concentration camp survivors, and there's an incredible amount of dichotomy in the nuance of the human experience meaning that I've read accounts where survivors lost all faith in God as a result of what they were forced to endure, and I've also read accounts where survivors had experienced a deeper religious faith in those very same or in very similar conditions. While I cannot speak for Anne Frank, nor do I think it's fair for anyone else to, I do wish that a different Anne Frank quote was more frequently associated with her and also requoted. That quote is, quote, What is done cannot be undone but one can prevent it from happening again, end quote. Anne Frank wrote that on Sunday, May 7th, 1944. I would, like na- I would like to now offer up a fact about the First World War as a palate cleanser of sorts. Did you know that the famous German shepherd canine actor Rin Tin Tin was rescued from a World War I battlefield in France by American Army Air Service Officer Lee Duncan, who nicknamed the pup Rinty. On Sunday, September 15, 1918, after the success of the Battle of St. Mihail, Corporal Lee Duncan, who was an aerial gunner, was sent to the small village of Fleuret to find a suitable airfield for the 135th Aero Squadron. This area had been recently bombed, and while exploring, Duncan stumbled across a severely damaged dog kennel where he found a mama German shepherd that was starving to death, with five baby puppies that were so young that their eyes had yet to open. Duncan rescued all of the doggos and brought them back with him to his unit. When the puppies were old enough to wean, the mother was adopted by another officer, and other soldiers additionally adopted three of the pups from the litter. Duncan kept two of the puppies for himself, a boy and a girl, that he named Rin Tin Tin and Nanette, in honor of a pair of dolls who were popular luck talismans in France at that time. Because he considered the brother-sister puppy duo to be his personal good luck charms, the duo of dolls depicted a loving couple, who, according to the soldiers, survived the bombardment, and these dolls were often given as gifts, by families to their men who had gone off to fight in the war, as well as being a popular gift given by American soldiers by French children. Sadly, after the end of the war in 1919, 
when Duncan and his lucky pups loaded up on a ship to head back to the States. When they arrived in Long Island, New York, that is when and where Nanette's luck ran out. When in the temporary custody of a police dog breeder, Nanette developed pneumonia and soon passed away. As a gesture of good faith, I guess, the police breeder gave Duncan another female German shepherd, which he promptly named Nanette II, or Nanette II. There were some further setbacks and stumbling blocks on the road to fame for Lee Duncan and Renton Tin, but after winning some German shepherd dog shows in Los Angeles, California, that led to Renton Tin becoming memorialized on film and then to becoming the well-known household name that he still is to this day. And again, I have to share my absolute li- my absolute favorite detail that I've learned in my research into the story of Corporal Lee Duncan and Renton Tin, which is the spilled tea revealed in the James W. English authored biography titled The Renton Tin Story, that Duncan's wife filed for and was granted a divorce on the grounds that he loved the dog more than he loved her. And while that shade can be twisted and potentially interpreted in many ways, I do have to comment in Lee Duncan's defense that, who knows, maybe she just sucked. I've definitely, I have definitely got more than one ex that I can say with zero hesitation that by the death kneel end of the relationship, oh yeah, I love the dog way more. So good for Lee Duncan and for Rin Tin Tin, who are absolutely out there living their best lives. I have yet to encounter anything that suggests Duncan was in any way a bastard, so that's the narrative I'm choosing to run with. You should take my take with a grain of salt, but the main takeaway here is the man loved his dog. And now for something completely different. Rapid fire fun facts to know and share about bones and not bones. Did you know that your funny bone is not actually a bone but a nerve? Because yup, not a bone. You know when you whack your elbow on something how you might feel a weird tingling sensation that runs down your arm and into your hand and fingers? That's because you took a direct hit of brute force in your ulnar nerve. Ouch! Am I right? The ulnar nerve runs all the way from your neck to your pinky finger, and this nerve gives your pinky and ring fingers sensation and also aids in controlling your grip. The ulnar nerve is protected by muscle or by fat for most of its length, but the portion that's located right behind the bony bump of your elbow is uniquely exposed, leaving it vulnerable to bumps. At the bump of your elbow, the nerve is only protected by the tunnel of tissue called the cubital tunnel, and this is the longest section of exposed nerve in the entirety of the human body. So why do we refer to it as a funny bone, even though it is in fact not a bone? Oh, open up, baby birds. I got that knowledge and I want to feed you. There are two leading theories as to why. The first is that the nerve pain is activated when the nerve rubs against the humerus bone. Specifically, the sensation is caused by pinching the ulnar nerve between the surface and the distal end of the humerus. The word humerus, referring to the bone, is spelled H-U-M-E-R-U-S and is a homophone of the word humerus, meaning funny, and spelled H-U-M-O-R-O-U-S. So the first theory is that the term funny bone is a play on words. The second theory is simply that when you hit it, the related nerve pain feels kind of funny in a weird way, so people just took and ran with that and started commonly using that as the name. Moving on, both metaphorically and anatomically wise, but not quite kinetically. There are a grand total of 206 bones in the average adult human skeleton, but it is absolutely possible for some adults to have more. And no, this is not a sexual innuendo or a pregnancy joke. I'm referring to the fact that the number of bones in our ribs, vertebrae, and digits can vary from person to person, and due to such factors as height, genetics, deformities, and other anatomy anomalies, it is entirely possible for a normal adult human skeleton to have up to 213 bones. The skeletal system is broadly split into two different sections, known as the axial skeleton and the appendicular skeleton. The axial skeleton is generally composed of 80 bones that support our, support our upper body. The appendicular skeleton generally consists of the 126 bones in our arms, legs, and pelvis. Bones are important. They give the body shape and form, and they offer support and protection for our more vulnerable bits. And I can't remember where I initially heard it, but I heard someone on a TikTok probably describe brushing their teeth as skull care because it's really the only time we polish our own bones while we're alive? Not gonna lie. That description left me shook and blew my mind quite a bit. 
To further blow our collective minds, did you know that gummy worms have more bones in them than actual worms? Because they do. Gummy worms and other gummy foods, as well as products like Jell-O, are made from and contain gelatin. And according to the Britannica.com article that I found and totally linked in the show notes, written by Banika Gandhi, quote, Gelatin is made from decaying animal hides, boiled crushed bones, and the connective tissue of cattle and pigs. Animal bones, skins, and tissues are obtained from slaughterhouses. Gelatin processing plants are usually located next to slaughterhouses, end quote. While that's objectively pretty gnarly and somewhat nasty information to process, it's additionally good to know that gelatin also contains lysine, which aids in strengthening bones and can also improve the body's ability to absorb calcium, which can help prevent bone loss. Now that you are aware of this, feel free to categorize your peach rings and your sour gummy worms as a preventative and medicinal treat. You're not indulging in a little kid snack. No, no, no. You're noshing responsibly and keeping the osteoporosis away. Are you ready for more fun facts to know and share? This is Rapid Fire First Episode Facts Take Two, Electric Boogaloo. This time the category is Early Aviation and the Wright Brothers. I'd like to start off with a meme that I came across. The credit goes to Tumblr user Biggest Gaudius Patronuses. Quote, Technically, the Wright brothers built the worst airplane in the world. If you do it first, you do it worst, and history will thank you for it, end quote. I love everything about that sentiment. As someone who can get hung up on perfectionism to the point of paralysis, I find both comfort and inspiration in that statement. Without further ado, here are some facts that I hunted and gathered and lovingly prepared for you. I baked a nutritious thought loaf composed of facts about the Wright brothers and the Wright family, seasoned with a dash of factual information regarding early aviation with a little shimmy shimmy Roosevelt relation twist at the end. Skoden. Did you know that Orville and Wilbur Wright were the only members of their immediate family who did not receive a high school diploma, attend college, or marry after successfully surviving to adulthood? Technically, Wilbur did complete all four years of high school, but he never actually received a diploma. And Orville, well, he never made it to his senior year. Orville dropped out to join older brother Wilbur in the founding of a printing company, and then later on a bicycle shop. Also good to know, were you aware the Wright brothers had other siblings besides just each other? There were a grand total of seven children born to Milton Wright and his wife, Susan Catherine Coner Wright, mostly boys. There was Ruchlin, who was the oldest. He was born in 1861, and he was followed by Lauren, spelled L-O-R-I-N, born in 1862. Next up in birth order was Wilbur, born in 1867, followed by a set of twins, Otis and Ida, who sadly did not survive infancy. The twins were born in 1870. After that, Orville was born in 1871. And finally, the baby of the family was Catherine Wright, born in 1874. And Catherine would be the only surviving Wright daughter. I wanted to share an info tidbit that I found somewhat interesting, which is the fact that Catherine and Orville shared a birthday. Their shared birth date was August 19th. After their mother Susan passed away, Catherine stepped up to take over her mother's duties in the Wright household until she left for college. Catherine was the only Wright sibling to finish uni, having graduated from Oberlin College in 1898 with her teaching degree, and she began teaching classical literature at Steele High School in Dayton, Ohio. Catherine was an instrumental influence on her brothers. From providing a motherly type of love, nurture, and care for her brothers and the rest of the family after her mother's death, when Catherine was only 15 years old, to later Catherine taking a leave of absence from her teaching position to care for Orville and to help nurse him back to health when he was badly injured in an airplane accident, a job which she never ended up returning to after the extended time caring for her injured brother. She was also heavily involved in her brother's airplane business and was made an officer of the Wright Company after Wilbur's death in 1912. There's also some interesting debate and infighting between scholars who have spent extensive time researching Orville and Wilbur Wright, with a small group holding diehard to the belief that one or both brothers might have been homosexuals, which is why they believe the brothers never married. There's a different, larger group of Wright scholars whose arguments hold way more merit, at least in my mind, which is the belief that both brothers may have been on the autism spectrum. 
I adore esoteric academic infighting. Get you a snack and settle in, because there will be some passionate debates that have the potential to turn into basically blood feuds, and they are awesome to watch as a spectator from the sidelines. I am absolutely always here for that type of discourse, and yes, I always keep snacks on hand in my bag, bet. In a story I stumbled across that gives heavy credence to the autism label being correctly applied in the case of the Wright brothers, Orville had continued to live with baby sister Catherine well into their adulthoods, as she was considered somewhat of a spinster. When Catherine did finally get married, Orville basically had a major meltdown over it and refused to attend her wedding. They didn't end up fully reconciling until Catherine was on her deathbed, dying from pneumonia, which, yeah. Deaf sounds like Orville had at least a touch of the tism. Did you know that thanks to a coin toss, Orville was the first brother airborne? To tell you more, I want to quote from a History.com article written by Christopher Klein. Quote, The brothers tossed a coin to see who would first test the right flyer on the sands of Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. Older brother Wilbur won the toss, but his first attempt on Monday, December 14, 1903, was unsuccessful and caused minor damage to the aircraft. Three days later, Orville, in a coat and tie, lay flat on his stomach on the plane's lower wing and took the controls. At 10.35 a.m., the right flyer moved down the guiding rail with Wilbur running alongside to balance the delicate machine. For 12 seconds, the aircraft left the ground before touching down 120 feet away in the soft sands. The brothers exchanged turns at the controls three more times that day, and each flight covered an increasing distance, with Wilbur's final flight lasting nearly a minute and covering a distance of 852 feet, end quote. Did you know the Wright brothers only flew together one time? Because, yup. The reason they only flew together the once was because they had promised their father, Milton, that they wouldn't fly together. Milton feared losing both sons in a single airplane accident, which, granted, is a very reasonable fear, especially given the incredible amounts of danger involved in early aviation. I do feel like it's important to note the Wright brothers were fully grown adult men when they made this pinky promise with their papa, which is, like, really not all that different than me saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't actually attend your baby shower this weekend. My mom said no, regardless of the fact that I turned 40 years of age on my last birthday. It's pretty cool to know there's historical precedence in my can't go, my parents said no, but said as a legal adult, decline. That one singular flight that the brothers took together happened on Wednesday, May 25th, 1910, near Dayton, Ohio. After landing, Orville then took his 82-year-old father on what would be his father's first and only flight. As Orville gained elevation, Milton cried out excitedly, and this is a direct quote, quote, Higher, Orville! Higher! End quote. Oh, how freaking cute is that? What a proud papa. Did you know that Neil Armstrong carried a piece of the right flyer with him to the moon? Because he sure did. I want to again quote from that same History.com article that I previously mentioned. Quote, When another aeronautical pioneer from Ohio, Neil Armstrong, became the first man to step foot on the moon in 1969, inside his spacesuit pocket was a piece of wood from the airplane's left propeller. End quote. And to further connect these two events, I would like to give you a glimpse into my second episode, which is titled Time is an Illusion, an Invention, and a Flat Circle. It's composed of mind-blowing facts designed to gleefully curb-stomp your perception of the passage of time. For my sneak peek into episode 2, I would like to inform you that the amount of time between the Wright brothers when they took their first flight in 1903 to when the first lunar landing and the moonwalk occurred in 1969 was only 66 years. 66! Whoa freaking Nelly, right? Did you know that in 1903, before the Wright brothers took their first historic flight, that the New York Times basically threw a massive amount of shade on the entire concept of aeronautics? On Friday, October 9th in 1903, the New York Times published an editorial headlined, Flying Machines Which Do Not Fly, in direct response to Samuel Pierpont Langley and Charles Mangley's somewhat spectacular failed attempts at flight. In a quote from that article, this prediction was made. 
It might be assumed that the flying machine, which will really fly, might be evolved by the combined and continuous efforts of mathematicians and mechanics in from one to ten million years. End quote. The Wright brothers were unfazed and basically said, oh yeah, cool, 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 hold my beer and watch this. And on Thursday, December 17th, 1903, about nine weeks after that Times editorial was published, Orville and Wilbur had their first successful flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Did you know who the first American president to fly in an airplane was? That would be none other than the rugged Mr. Theodore Roosevelt. On Thursday, October 11th, 1910, Teddy flew in a Wright Company Model B airplane. The pilot was aviator Art Hoxie, who was a member of the Wright exhibition team. Roosevelt reportedly told Hoxley after landing that, quote, that was the bulliest experience I ever had. I envy your professional conquest of space, end quote. Whoa, damn, that's some high praise from a notorious badass. Did you know who the first American president to travel on official business via airplane was? Well, that would be a different President Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a.k.a. FDR. On Thursday, January 14, 1943, he crossed the Atlantic in a Boeing 314 flying boat, dubbed the Dixie Clipper, to a World War II strategy meeting with Winston Churchill at Casablanca in North Africa. Speaking of the Roosevelts, I've got some segue facts that are unrelated to aviation, but they are Roosevelt relation-related. Do you know how Teddy Roosevelt and FDR were related? They were actually fifth cousins, as well as Eleanor, FDR's wife, being Teddy's niece, so they were also related through marriage. In fact, when Franklin and Eleanor got married, Teddy Roosevelt gave the bride away by walking her down the aisle. FDR was also related to an additional 10 presidents. By blood or by marriage, FDR had likewise lineage to John Adams, James Madison, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Andrew Johnson, Ulysses S. Grant, Benjamin Harrison, William Howard Taft, and, as previously mentioned, Theodore Roosevelt. For the final act of my first ever episode, I want to take you on a lemon-flavored rabbit hole followed by a fact about vegetables with a few other tangential tidbits thrown in for good measure before finally bidding y'all adieu until next time. Here we go. First up, lemons. You know that saying about when life gives you lemons? When I was a little kiddo, I had yet to develop an affinity for lemonade, so my little kid version of that saying was, when life gives you lemons, you should throw them at people. I was definitely the kind of kid that could be lovingly described as a handful. And then I grew up and realized, hey now, free stuff is cool. And then I grew up even more, and I learned about how lemons are not a naturally occurring citrus fruit. Citrus limons, as they are botanically classified as, are actually a hybrid fruit, meaning they are the result of a genetic cross between two other fruits. Those specific fruits that cross to make the lemon were the bitter orange and the citron fruit. And to trace that fruity family tree even further back, the bitter orange is a hybrid cross between a mandarin orange and a pomelo. Lemons, among lots of other fruit, are actually a human invention. And while the exact date of their first cultivation isn't known, scientists believe they've been around for over 4,000 years and that they first originated in East Asia, possibly in southern China or Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. So what I'm telling you is the true story about how instead of life giving us lemons, we gave lemons life. And before I move on and to further confuse things, did you know that everyone's favorite yellow citrus fruit is technically considered a berry? Because yeah, it is. To explain this to you in a way that will make the most amount of sense, I want to quote from an article titled, Is a lemon a fruit or a vegetable? A science teacher explains, quote, In the botanical sense, a berry has three distinct fleshy layers. The exocarp, which is the name of the outer skin, the mesocarp, which is the fleshy middle, and the endocarp, which is the innermost part, which holds the seeds. In order to be a berry, the fruit needs to have some kind of protective structure. This exocarp, or its outer layer, could be a peel, skin, or fuzz. In the instance of a lemon, the outermost peel would be considered the exocarp, while the, its white rind, or pith, just beneath the peel, is considered the mesocarp. 
and the fleshy insides holding the seeds are considered the endocarp. Not only that, but in order to be considered a berry, the fruit should contain two or more seeds and develop from one flower that has one ovary. End quote. The lemon became really popular worldwide in the 1800s and onward, once it was eventually rediscovered to be an effective treatment for scurvy. Scurvy is a disease resulting from a lack of vitamin C, aka azorbic acid, and scurvy is a disease that we most commonly associate with old-timey sailors and other seafarers. Nowadays, scurvy most commonly occurs in people with mental disorders, unusual eating habits, severe alcoholism, and older-slash-elderly individuals who live alone, as well as being a common sign of malnutrition in the developing world. It takes at least 30 days of little to no vitamin C being consumed in the diet before scurvy symptoms begin occurring. Early symptoms of scurvy include weakness, fatigue, and soreness in your arms and legs. Without treatment, decreased red blood cell production, gum disease, and changes in hair and bleeding from the skin may occur. After one to three months, scurvy sufferers may develop shortness of breath and bone pain. Other advanced scurvy symptoms include skin changes with roughness, easy bruising, loosening of the teeth, poor wound healing, and emotional changes. In the late stages, jaundice, generalized edema, aka swelling, neuropathy, which is the medical term for the weakness, numbness, and pain associated with nerve damage, fever, convulsions, and eventual death are frequently seen. Another terrifying detail is that when your body is suffering from the severe effects of scurvy, there isn't enough collagen left in your body to continue creating scar tissue, so old scars may start opening up, meaning you can suddenly begin spontaneously bleeding from long-ago healed wounds. Mucous membranes, which include your lips, mouth, nasal passages, and middle ear, may also begin to spontaneously bleed. Symptoms of scurvy were recorded in ancient Egypt as early as 1550 BC. In ancient Greece, the physician Hippocrates described symptoms of scurvy. In particular, his descriptions tell of swelling and obstruction observed in the spleen. And in 405 AD, the Chinese monk Faxion wrote about how ginger was carried on Chinese ships to prevent scurvy. It's one of my many favorite historical tidbits that humans kept learning and then unlearning the cure for scurvy throughout history. We would just learn and then forget about it in a repeating series of big, dumb, flat circles. All jokes aside, the knowledge that consuming foods containing vitamin C is both a cure and a preventative treatment for scurvy has been repeatedly forgotten and rediscovered well into the early 20th century. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it especially if the lesson is to eat lemons on long sea voyages so you don't die. Humans are so awesomely and complexly weird, and I absolutely love that about humanity as a whole. If nothing else, humans, collectively, are bloody well interesting. We are not always the most intelligent creature as a species, but the entertainment value is evident in our DNA. And don't even trip, my honey dips. Don't worry. I have more details about how the cure for scurry kept getting kept being a looping, dude, where's my car moment? But that will be included after a little more context and backstory regarding one of the times that information was rediscovered again. You see, it wasn't until 1747 that Scottish physician James Lind was able to formally demonstrate that scurvy could be treated by supplementing the diet with citrus fruits in one of the first controlled clinical experiments reported, excuse me, experiments reported in the history of medicine. During the Age of Exploration, which lasted between 1500 and 1800 AD, it's been estimated that scurvy killed at least 2 million sailors, and during the 18th century, scurvy killed more British sailors than wartime enemy action. It was a huge, huge problem for sailors all across the globe. And here's where my interest became very piqued. Did you know that the growth and consolidation of the Sicilian Mafia is strongly associated with the external surge in the popularity of and demand for lemons after the effective use of citrus fruits to prevent and treat scurvy was rediscovered by James Lind? Because, <laughs> yeah, the Sicilian Mafia got their foot in the door with citrus cultivation in the 1800s, and it's interesting to note that no other crop or industry appears to have the same type of robust impact on Mafia activity. There's a really rad book that details this entire 
this entire history titled Cosa Nostra, A History of the Sicilian Mafia, written by John Dickey, that I highly recommend to anyone wanting to do a deeper dive on this topic. And now here's the part I previously promised to explain. The part about how the cure for scurvy kept being forgotten and relearned by humanity. And to explain that most effectively, I want to quote from a Blue Psy article written by Andrew Holding that you know I've totes linked in the show notes, but strap in, this is going to be somewhat of a verbal wall of text. Quote, The loss of knowledge has been attributed to several factors. Firstly, James Lynn showed in his work that there was no connection between the acidity of the citrus fruit and its effectiveness at curing scurvy. In particular, he noted that acids alone, sulfuric acid or vinegar, would not suffice. Despite this, it remained a popular theory that any acid could be used in place of citrus fruit. This misconception had significant consequences. When the Royal Navy changed from using Sicilian lemons to West Indian limes, cases of scurvy reappeared. The limes were thought to be more acidic, and it was therefore assumed they would be more effective at treating scurvy. However, limes actually contain much less vitamin C and were consequently much less effective. Furthermore, fresh fruit was substituted with lime juice that had often been exposed to air or to copper piping. This resulted in at least a partial removal of vitamin C from the juice, thus further reducing its effectiveness. The discovery that fresh meat was able to cure scurvy was another reason why people no longer treated the condition with fresh fruit. The discovery led to the belief that perhaps scurvy was not caused by a dietary problem at all. Instead, it was thought to be the result of a bacterial infection from tainted meat. In fact, the healing properties of fresh meat comes from the high levels of vitamin C it contains. Finally, the arrival of steam shipping substantially reduced the amount of time people spent at sea. Therefore, the difficulties in carrying enough fresh produce were reduced. This decreased the risk of scurvy so that less effective treatments, such as lime juice, proved effective enough to deal with the condition most of the time. Unfortunately, this meant that knowledge of the most effective treatment for scurvy was gradually lost. It was not until 1907 that Axel Holst, a professor, a professor of hygiene and bacteriology at the University of Oslo, and a pediatrician named Theodor Froelich rediscovered the lost cure for scurvy. They became very interested in a disease called beriberi, which is now known to be caused by a thiamine, aka B1, deficiency. They used guinea pigs to test their hypothesis that beriberi was the result of a natural deficiency. The decision to use guinea pigs was crucial. Apart from humans and other primates, most animals are able to synthesize vitamin C themselves. Guinea pigs, by chance, cannot. And although they did not develop beriberi, they did develop the symptoms of scurvy. Had Holst and Froelich chosen almost any other animal, they would not have discovered that guinea pigs developed scurvy when fed a diet of just grain. Host and Froelich went on to show that they could prevent scurvy by simply feeding the guinea pigs lemon juice, something that James Lynn had shown a century and a half earlier. When their original publication on these results was not well, was not well received, since the idea of nutritional def deficiencies was seen as something as a novelty at the time, the model they had developed with guinea pigs was vital to subsequent work on scurvy and vitamin C. The work of James Lind will no doubt forever be remembered in the history books as a great turning point in science, while the loss of knowledge continues to be overlooked. The cost of these mistakes to human lives may be firmly in the past, but the tale still holds relevance within the modern world. Time and time again during the history of scurvy, individuals put their own agendas and beliefs ahead of scientific results, the consequences of which should not be forgotten. End quote. To wrap up this lemon-themed rabbit hole with a neat little bow, have you ever heard of lemon ants and the devil's gardens that they create? Lemon ants live in deep in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. The indigenous tribes of the Amazon have many eerie local legends involving evil spirits to explain the so-called devil's gardens that they've encountered in the rainforest. A devil's garden is a large area of land that consists almost entirely of only a single tree species, which is a huge anomaly in the normally remarkably dense and diverse population of plant life that is generally found on any given acre of rainforest land. That one single tree species is pretty difficult for me to announce, so apologies in advance, please bear with me, and here we go. 
The proper name is the Doroya Hasuda, spelled D-U-R-O-I-A-H-I-R-S-U-T-A, which is a tree whose roots are known to contain a strong growth inhibitor. For a decently long amount of time, scientists believe that this inhibitor, known as plumericin, was the chemical key that unlocked the explanation behind the biological mystery of the creation of these devil's gardens. But in 2005, Stanford University grad Megan E. Fredrickson and her team published the findings of a four-year study which determined that actually, the tree itself was not responsible for eliminating enemy plant life encroaching on its territory. Devil's Gardens are created by the determined efforts of a little bug known as the lemon ant. The Doroya Hirsuta is the lemon ant's favorite tree to build their nest in. And I'm not going to continue to further frustrate myself with struggling to pronounce that proper tree name, so I'm going to refer to it as the lemon ant's favorite tree from here on out. The lemon ants use formic acid, which is a natural herbicide, to create these single species area. And the tree, in return, provides the lemon ant colonies a place to expand as it creates new nesting sites within the tree saplings. To add even more details, I want to quote from an AudityCentral.com article that's linked in the show notes by Spooky. And yes, I did also swipe, swap out the scientific name in favor of saying the lemon ant's favorite tree in the quote I'm about to read from because, whoa, freaking Nelly, that is a hard science word. Thank you for noticing. And quote, when introducing other plant species, both in natural devil's gardens and in laboratory conditions, scientists reported an almost immediate response to the lemon ants. They promptly attacked the intruders, injecting formic acid into their leaves, which started dying off within 24 hours. Most of the leaves on the saplings died within five days. Apparently, devil's gardens begin with a lemon ant queen colonizing a single lemon ant's favorite tree. In time, new saplings of the same species began to grow in the space cleared by the ants, and their colony grows. Research shows that these botanical anomalies grow at a rate of 0.7% each year, which, judging from the size of some of them, suggests that they can be over 800 years old. Seeing how efficient these tiny ants are at killing the competitors of their host, one wonders why the rainforest isn't just a single species of trees. Well, it turns out that as the colony grows and the devil's garden grow past a certain size, the ants are, able to are not able to protect it against encroaching vegetation anymore. Devil's gardens is a fascinating phenomenon for many biologists as it reveals the control ants can have over their environment, creating single species structures in what is one of the most diverse ecosystems on earth, the Amazon rainforest, end quote. And that is the happily ever after ending to one of the mysteries of the Amazon, the Devil's Garden, that turned out to be a symbiotic love story between plant and ant. This second to last little tidbit is one of my favorite things that I have learned in the entire history of ever. I'm going to quote from a Tumblr post by two users whose screen names are Tilt Hat and Kitty Hawk. And it's one of the top images returned in a Google search for vegetables are a social construct. But I also provided a link to an article from the Athens Science Observatory written by Tara Conway titled Vegetables are a Social Construct that breaks down the same information more academically, which is super useful, informative, and cool. Now to quote that Tumblr post, quote, Today I learned that, from a biological point of view, vegetables don't exist. All food items we call vegetables can actually be labeled as a real plant part. Carrots are roots lettuce is a leaf, etc. Since I see some folks in the comments still confused over this, vegetable is a purely culinary word. Fruit has both a culinary and a biological definition, and yes, the culinary definition can sometimes contradict the biological definition. It's also why saying a tomato is a fruit is technically true, but a tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable, is false. Also, I love this fact because it allows me to repeatedly say the objectively funny phrase, vegetables are a social construct, end quote. Last up, hey nerds, it's a new word alert. <coughs> that sound indicates a new word drop. That's right, we are ending with a single word vocabulary lesson. Is anyone familiar with the word historiography? 
That's spelled H-I-S-T-O-R-I-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. The mouthfeel of historiography is exquisite, and it's downright straight up pleasing to my brain. The word historiography, it basically means the study of the history of history. What's the difference between history and historiography, you might be asking? To tell you about that, I want to share two quotes from an article titled History and Historiography, What's the Difference? authored by Sofia Garcia Buell. The first quote is, quote, History is the event or period and the study of it. Historiography is the study of how history was written, who wrote it, and what factors influenced how it was written, end quote. The second quote from that same article is, quote, History is the event and historiography is how to study and make sense of it, end quote. That's it. That's it. Fin, finito, finale. This is the end, my beautiful friends. That's a wrap on the first ever episode of Rapid Fire Education with Lori Danger. Thank you for learning with me. Before I formally say goodbye, I want to bring attention to a really cool organization that I recently learned about, especially with the holiday season rapidly approaching. Author's note, the holiday season was rapidly approaching when this article was being written. It is now January, but this is still an important organization whose goals are important year-round. So I'm going to continue to endorse them with whatever small platform I may or may not have. OneSimpleWish.org All one word. O-N-E-S-I-M-P-L-E-W-I-S-H dot org is a nonprofit organization that fulfills one wish of children who are in foster care or who have been otherwise impacted by that trauma and or other crisis. There's a section of the website dedicated to urgent wishes, as well as a section for wishes costing under $100. US Please consider granting a foster child's wish this holiday season or at any time of the year by going to onesimplewish.org and being generous with your donations if you are in a position to be able to do so. You can make a big difference in a child's life by granting one wish. Sharing is caring. Spread the love. Speaking of love, if hateful people around the world can hate without question, conversely, then I can love in that same spirit with no questions asked. I love your guts. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at rfepodcast at gmail.com. I would like to thank my biological mom, my Hawaiian mom, and finally, my fairy pod mothers, Sadie and Courtney Eck. The Eck sisters host a true crime podcast together called They Will Kill that is pretty gosh darn awesome. And if you're interested in true crime told in an, in, in an informative and respectful manner, I highly recommend you check it out. Courtney Eck also has another podcast called Please Leave, which is a horror fiction podcast where you'll find truly scary stories you cannot get out of your head. Both They Will Kill and Please Leave are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. Thank you for joining me and tune in again next month to continue to learn more about the world around us and the history of how things came to be. With me, your host, Lori Danger. New episodes drop on or around the 13th. Until next time, please stay safe, please stay hydrated, and most importantly, please stay curious. I love your guts. Goodbye.